You're listening to the Lean Built Podcast. I'm Jay. And I'm Andrew. In this podcast, we discuss our manufacturing companies, lean principles, and the freedom that we're pursuing in life and business. So we are recording this episode at the very tail end of 2023, looking ahead in a few days to reopening for 2024. Jay, what's on the horizon? Yeah, I've been doing a lot of planning, which is what I should be focusing on. Over the years, I've moved from like technician to manager, and I feel like I've really leaned in hard to the entrepreneurial role. Although you're an entrepreneur the whole way, but really kind of like the guy that sets the tone, sets the vision, monitors and manages culture, that type of thing. So 2024 is going to be a big year. It's probably going to be the year that we don't buy a lot of equipment, only because we're physically limited to our four walls. We have space. We're going to have space that's going to be freed up, but really lean into the culture aspect of it. As far as equipment, we are going to buy two more pieces of equipment. One will be a grinder and one will be some other piece of equipment, TBD. But that's espresso machine. Yeah. Well, okay. So don't get me started on that. I'm hooked on my new espresso maker. But, anyways, yeah, it's going to be one of those years where it, it leans into the fact that we're a bigger company now and we have lots of personalities and the company cannot be personality driven. I've tolerated it for a long time because you have limited number of people and each person has a specific role. Now we've got overlap. Now I'm really kind of being focused on leadership development and the culture of the company and really getting that communicated properly, over-communicating it, and then just holding everyone kind of accountable to it. It's really going to affect our hiring moving forward because when we hire, a lot of times it's out of desperation. I've learned that is the worst time to hire. You should hire when you don't need people, when you don't need, when you're not under pressure, you don't need to make deadlines. It's when you can stop, you can interview 20 people for one position. At the end of it, you go, yeah, all 20, they weren't a great fit. We'll just punts for a little bit. So that's really my my big focus for 2024. What about you? We are getting ready to do some desperate hiring. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> what I mean by that is at the end of the year, we did a team exercise where we took some time and went through a guided series of questions. It was a, what we call 7M analysis. I did it with a guy named John Motner. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just here in person, uh, one morning workshop at our shop. And we just used it as sort of a brainstorming session to identify a lot of unpursued opportunities that are adjacent or internal to the company and also problems or issues that people in the company are aware of that we need to address. And I had been feeling throughout November and December as we were managing to not fall too far behind, but we're not making a lot of headway on inventory levels that we were basically at the max production capacity based on the people we had, their current levels of training, our available equipment, our supply chain limitations, of which there were several, and and the overall health. We had a number of employees out on sort of a rolling basis throughout November and December. And that really, that workshop, one of the things that everybody brought up from each of their different places in the company was this feeling of, I have work to be doing all the time. I don't have a lot of time to be training somebody else to do my job mm-hmm. or training on some other job that I need to be learning from somebody else. And I don't have very much time free to work on and improve the process and the documentation. Mm-hmm. We're just having to kind of stick to our lane and just keep our heads down and plow through production just to get orders out the door. Yep. 
and realizing that meant that everywhere that we were missing two months worth of opportunities to make improvements, we were too busy doing the thing, too busy rowing the boat to mm -hmm. be improving the boat. Yeah. That immediately made me think, okay, we can't wait another month to address this. We need to get some more people in here. And particularly for us, the main bottleneck is the finishing department in our company. And when we say finishing, I don't mean beat blasting or metal coating or paint. Finishing buffing. for us is buffing, deburring yeah. the machined edges on all of our holster products. Final inspection, that type of stuff. It's actually, that happens fairly early on in the process. Shells get formed and machined and then immediately get finished and then they get assembled and then they go through a full assembly QC because you can't actually test fit the holsters until they're put together with the hardware because that changes the structural properties of the shell. Sure. It's like trying to do an inflated test on a tire that's not on a rim yet. Like yeah. You got to okay. put the whole thing on a wheel and then yes. blow it up and, balance, and then you can test everything. Makes sense. Okay. But we had one employee who worked for us for a number of years who no longer is with the company. She's getting married next week. She's moving away. We're really happy for her. But she was our expert buffer finisher. And when she left, it created a hole that we have just meted, just backfilled by using our backup people who were trained on that and using them in finishing as needed. But it really has become a pain point because the most experienced employees are the ones that are the best able to do that work. They're the ones who are most valuable everywhere else in the company and pulling them off some important job to stick them on a buffing station mm -hmm. to deburr a few hundred holsters is just not a good use at that. Right. And so that has continued to be a resurfacing pain point every day or two where it's like, oh, we need another bin of this done or we need a, another hundred of those buffed and I have to grab somebody who has a lot of other important things to do. Or in one case, I ended up doing a bunch of buffing myself for a couple of days, mm -hmm. which you you do what you have to do. We're still a small scrappy company. When the orders have to go out the door, if I have to stay late and run a buffing wheel to make inventory of shells for the following morning, mm -hmm. that's what we do. Yeah. It's Gotta not ideal. That it's way. not ideal. And having that be shown so clearly that there were these key bottlenecks where we don't currently have anybody focused on that area. We don't have a pipeline of people training on that area currently. And anybody we could move into that area in the company right now would immediately create a hole where we just pulled them from. Sure. We don't have the analogy is we don't have any players on the bench. I was just going to say, there's no bench players. There's have utility players. Everyone is a utility player. Everyone's a utility player. Yeah. We have exactly as many players as there are spots on the field. And the instant somebody has to, is out on vacation, somebody's out sick, the instant we're missing anybody, the other team has a power play, mm -hmm. just automatically power play. Yeah. And yep. that is a situation that I didn't realize how much it was wearing on me to have that feeling of we don't have any cushion of people. And depending on who was out sick at any given time or who was on vacation at any given time, you end up making your goalie play forward and making this person stand in goal and making this person who's right footed play over here on the left side of the field. Yeah. All this stuff where even if you have almost exactly the right number of people, if everybody's playing slightly out of their main position, the overall productivity on the team goes measurably down. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. We had a scenario. We had a guy that took three weeks off, two and a half weeks, but a total impact of three weeks of no production. And we have redundancies. You know, many years ago, I was, I think I was telling Saunders or someone, maybe it was John Grimswell, 
um, that we kind of have majors and minors in the company. So when you specialize in something like, hey, primarily Alex is going to be on Mills, that's where he majors. But every now, well, Alex is a bad example. He doesn't go to lathes. But if he needed to cover for on lathes, he could. That's his minor. And it's worked well over the years because if there's no majors and minors, everyone has to major in something but needs to also minor in another thing where they're 100% competent, they're 100% trained, but they don't necessarily start their day at that position. That's worked really well until you have a guy that leaves for three weeks. Now, most of my guys, like we all like working. We find mm-hmm. you know joy and passion and satisfaction out of working. So it's rare for a guy to be gone more than five working days. It's just not. I think one of my guys, Juan, when he goes to Mexico, it's like maybe he misses like a, a Wednesday through the following Friday. So but we prepare for it, we get ahead of it. But having a guy gone for like legit three, like 15 working days, coming back, it's like, no, our secondary, like the guy that miners in it, which would be John trying to cover, it was tough. It was tricky. And we definitely felt that pain. And I thought, well, do we hire? Well, no, we don't hire. We train up so that maybe there's a second guy that miners in lathe operation. So, but it's tricky when you're behind the eight ball. If you don't have an extra bench player, it is tough. And the second you fall behind, your ability to make changes that will allow you to catch back up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. To that point. So my guy that came back from being gone three weeks, he's been working overtime, which we don't normally do. It's We have a kind of a policy, no nights, weekend, or overtime. But we're like, this is one of those circumstances where we can justify him working overtime. I think he he ran out of PTO, so he's fine with it. We're fine with it. Sales have dictated that, yeah, we need to keep the lathe department, instead of eight hours a day, we need to push it to 10 or 12. So that's been good. But you know what you started to say, I don't think you necessarily know how precarious it is until you have a key person step away, either like leaving the company or just gone for longer than you're comfortable with. It's one of those things that sneaks up on you. It really does. It really does. So we got snuck and I ended up finishing up the year pretty worn out, promptly got sick, was sick through Christmas, and I'm just now back on my feet between, in the week between Christmas and New Year's. And yeah, coming yeah. into January saying, we're going to be hiring. The constant danger I have with enjoying optimizing things down to a tight, lean level is there are times when you need that little bit of extra cushion. Cushion mm-hmm. of inventory, cushion of raw materials, cushions of people, cushions in the schedule. Mm-hmm. I enjoy trimming the fat. And occasionally you trim too close and you trim into the bone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was how I was feeling at the end of the year. So if we need two new production employees, we should probably hire at least three, probably four. Mm-hmm. Because we're not going to be able to train them all into being equally productive at the same rate. And we're going to need backups. We need some bench players. We can train more efficiently if we have multiple people going through training at the same time. Yeah, I was going to say you can bring them up to speed on lean, orient them at the same time, which I did years ago. And that was great. I had four new employees that all started within around four months of each other. I'm like, yes, let's do this. Let's break. Let's do a full. Oh, we actually filmed it. It's on our YouTube I think channel. I've seen part of that video. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Two-part series. So yeah, there's definitely some economies of scale to be had in the training and the orientation and onboarding process. But just saying we're going to have 
some extra labor. If we have everybody working at 80% capacity and that keeps us steady on all our inventory levels, that extra 20%, I don't think we're going to struggle to find useful things to do. Currently, we do. We, for some reason, if we open next week and on Friday next week, we just had a slow day and there was just nothing to do mm-hmm. because people have gotten out of the habit of making improvements because it's been head down, hard charging for weeks. Mm-hmm. They would tend to just be like, ah, I'm not sure what to do next. But if we build in the habit of some amount of downtime every day is normal. Mm-hmm. Little pockets of downtime every day are normal. And that we want to not treat those as a thing that hopefully goes away when we get busier. But that's that's a normal part. It's Swiss cheese has holes in it. If it doesn't, it's something else. Yeah. And that we should be using those times to make improvements, to cross-train, to shadow another employee and get oriented in their area, see a little bit of what they're doing, just mm-hmm. watch their process and learn about it. That all makes a lot of sense to me, and I want to start building it in. Yeah. Well, one of the core tenets of lean manufacturing, or at least what we practice, people-centric lean manufacturing, is that there should be those pockets of downtime, and they're called morning meetings. You sharpen the axe first thing, and then you're going to cut in six hours what other companies cut in eight hours. That's yeah. that's key. Yeah. And it's, despite the extra production demand and the shortage of people, we have continued to reliably do our morning 3Sing and have our morning meetings. Although I tend to, if we're under production pressure, I try to keep those morning meetings a little tighter mm-hmm. and a little quicker just to, if people are feeling the pressure of, man, I got a lot of stuff on my bench I need to start getting through today. I don't want the meeting to feel like it wanders too much. Yeah, right. If I can make a quick point, years ago, okay, so Modern Machine Shop Magazine has their annual top shops. It's not a competition, just a survey. And then they will highlight the literal top shops that have the best KPIs, things like that. So one year I went through it. I recognize that we don't fit apples to apples with what a job shop is because we manufacture these components, we assemble them, and we sell them. And if we were selling to a workholding company that had no equipment, they would assemble it, they would mark up, they would have to mark up to cover their advertising costs or engineering costs or customer service or fulfillment, all that stuff. So when we make a component and our true cost is $18, you know, we may sell it as it's assembled into one of our products for maybe, I don't know, $150 just because of that. There's more costs that need to be covered. So I took that into account. And I was actually surprised that we were not in the top percentage. Like we did well. And keep in mind, I'm using like adjusted for, not inflation, adjusted for, it's just not a job shop. That's just the point. Like, how do you do this? But you could see that the shops that were really efficient were the ones that had been around a long time. They had lean principles in practice. They had all the software developed. They had a core team, people that had been in the companies for many, many years, if not decades. And they were kind of like, not so much legacy shops, but they were mature shops. They were shops that they really focused on the process and they had all the buzzwords, things like that. They had all the, the, the ISO certs and things like that. And it really does take a kind of a good, like visionary owner entrepreneur to say, Hey, we're going to do this. I'm going to, yeah, look, practically an ISO certification doesn't change what we look like day to day. But it certainly has us forward looking so that we can have a process that seems irritating to people when they have to fill out forms, quality forms. But that's just what you do. And so after seeing, oh, we're not like 
one of the top shops, if we were just a job shop, hey, let's start making changes so that we can actually become one of those top shops. What do these shops do? And they have processes, they have schedules, they have all those things. So there is really no downtime in those shops. There's always something process-based to be done. Yeah. The idea of a top shop and needing to have some kind of metrics to justify that, I'm curious, what are the KPIs that your team looks at regularly to assess how the whole company is doing? Mm -hmm. Are there any? And if so, what are they and how do you communicate them? Yeah, that's a good question. So we do, I do have some KPIs there, whether they're finance-based or one of the, my favorite global KPIs is net profits per employee, or you could just go revenue per employee because you can literally compare that against publicly traded companies. You see what their profits are. You see how many employees they have. You just divide them. And then you go, if there's a, a company that I admire Let's just say, how about a, a Tesla? Okay. Is our revenue per employee higher or lower than Tesla's? You can go to Apple. Is their revenue, how much money they have on uh, retained earnings? What is that a percentage of their revenue? Like those are the types of things that can serve as guiding points mm -hmm. um, and just points of just general comparison. But the big thing that I really focus on is if there's a KPI, by the way, KPI is key performance indicator. If there's a KPI that does not trigger an action, then it's not a great KPI, at least for myself. So for example, here's the number and it's some abstract number. Well, now do I need to take that number and then think about it, digest it, hope it goes up or maybe, you know, employee retention or injury workplace. That's another KPI. Does that go down? Like how to, what is the actions taken? Like I'm trying to create KPIs that trigger actions. And it's the exact same thing as a Kanban card. I really don't care how many SmartVac shafts we have in stock. I just know that if we have 100, we better start making more. When we hit 800, we're done. We don't need to make more. It's just those triggers of the high and low. That's why I'm going to really lean into KPIs this next year and just throw a bunch out. Some of them are just so arbitrary. Gross sales can you control that? Well, maybe, but there's a lot of things that can happen. Like if how much did we spend in marketing? How many videos did we put out? How many videos focused on our products instead of just our philosophies or our, our growth story, those types of things. So no, it definitely has to be KPIs that base that trigger actions. That's what I care about. Not just vanity KPIs. In my business group, oh no, he, this guy is not a member anymore, but he had a really cool KPI. It was a dashboard. It was like literal like steam gauges. And it was just really cool. Like he's like, oh, we're over in the red line over here and this dropped below. And I thought that was really cool. And I went down this deep dive. I think it was Tableau, T-A-B-L-E-A-U, I don't know, dot com, where you can feed it type any type of data. And then it creates kind of like a, a dashboard with lots of different ways to color it. I went down that rabbit hole for, oh man, months. I want to say like nine months trying to build the dashboard. And at the end, I'm like, it looks cool. It makes me smile when I see it, but it literally has no impact on my decision-making in the company. It's literal vanity. I think it looks cool. Yeah. I actually had a discussion. We had our Vistage meeting today, sort of our end of year lunch. 
And I was talking with one of the guys afterwards about KPIs, and he gave me examples of a few kinds of KPIs he's used as an exec in other companies he's been in. It's helpful for me to see right now, I was thinking about what KPIs would tell me that we're actually making progress on our labor shortage and our inventory levels. So for me, anytime a job is created in our ERP because a particular item is out of stock and the job is backordered, that is a red warning light. We should have zero of those. Mm -hmm. We should be functioning based on minimum on hand numbers and not out of stock statuses. Mm -hmm. That's right. And I think of KPIs as numbers I want to see to create inaction. The flip side is if a certain thing shows up here, I do something about it, but it's also numbers that tell me whether or not I can leave something alone. Mm -hmm. If we're in production, everybody's working and we have had zero backorder triggers mm -hmm. in the previous 72 hours, then the stakes of exactly which priority job is at the very top of the list today the stakes for that are very, very much lower because we don't have anybody waiting on anything. There are no customers whose orders aren't going out the door for lack of a particular component or product. But yeah. the second back orders are in the mix, those have to go straight to the front of the line. This reminds me of Eliyahu Goldratt's book, The Goal. The Goal, yeah. And they're talking about how there are guys whose entire function is just to run around the factory and expedite jobs. Just find things that are late move them to the front of the line and get them going again. And that feels really efficient. Like, okay, everybody clear the lane. This job is a straight shot through is shipping. But what it actually is just a symptom of all the work up to that point being misallocated. That's right. Yeah. If there's labor tied up in other jobs that didn't need to be delivered yet, and this job is behind and it needed to be delivered yesterday, yeah. Then that labor was misallocated. Yeah. That expediter is a band-aid. He's treating symptoms, not root problems. The best expediter is no expediter. Yeah, absolutely. And so when we get backwards, a lot of what I've been doing in November and December is making day-by-day, hour-by-hour calls on expediting. Mm -hmm. And I think the single biggest track record KPI that I want to see is Number of days since last back order. And if we go number of days since last back ordered on a finished product or components. Yeah, on a, on a finished product. Okay. If somebody places an order for a thing on a website and we have 10 on the shelf, but we sell 12, but we need to create a new job and go make 10 more because two need to ship and then we need to restock the shelf. Sure. That's a back order. Yeah. And it's not the case that back orders can never happen because we are not trying to hold an impregnable amount of inventory for every single thing. A lot of our SKUs are not that popular and we don't need that many of them. Mm -hmm. And every once in a while, every left-handed Smith the Western Shield holder and his buddy, who's also left-handed, decide to order holsters in the same weekend and all of a sudden our single digit minimum on hand for that SKU isn't enough. So it's not the case that back orders are always an indication of a fundamental breakdown. They can be an indication that your minimum on hand is set too low. Yeah. And certainly any SKUs that frequently, repeatedly lapse into back order over a period of time 
Yeah. You're not making enough of them. You're not making them often enough. You're not inventorying them in a large enough quantity. We've actually been looking at rearranging some of our shelving mm -hmm. to make a little more room on the shelf for certain higher volume SKUs. So instead of the shelf having room for 20 of them, the shelf has room for 40 of them. Mm -hmm. Right. Because 20 of certain SKUs will sell in a day reliably three or four times a week. Yeah. So if we're making a full batch 20 for the shelf, by the next evening, those might all be sold out. And then we might be catching that back order and clearing it every day that it appears, but it shouldn't be appear. Right. We shouldn't be running the inventory level that low. It's like putting five bucks of gas in your car every day. Just stop at the gas station, yeah. fill it all the way up. Yeah. Do your week's worth of driving. If you only have time to put in five bucks worth of gas because you're going to be late to work, you can't wait until the tank is full. That's right. a whole separate problem. Yeah, big problem. Reminded me of, okay, so there's a bigger principle here that it reminds me of is that if you hold, I think in one of the previous podcasts, I talked about how lean is meant to be adaptive and how whenever people say, oh, you're not doing it the right way. No, this is how we decided to do it. Lean is a tool. Either you use it or not, you use it to the effectiveness that you want to. And uh, oh, I, it was on the Business on Machine podcast. I remember Saunders went to, it was Austria, it was the Glock factory. That's what it was, where someone at Glock said, like, they keep two years of raw materials on hand. Now, a lean person would say, just a general lean person would say, two years of raw materials, that's crazy. When I heard that on the podcast, I go, they make guns. Big orders come from big governments during wartime. That is not crazy. Glock has the appropriate amount of raw materials on hand to meet surge demand when they need it. And if they can get a great price on material that they know they'll eventually use within six months or six years, more power to them. That is not yeah. lean waste by Glock having probably a second facility storing raw materials under guards and lock and key. That's appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. You have a storage cost. You have to protect that stuff. You have to not let it corrode or rust or mm -hmm. get lost or dropped or damaged. But particularly those kinds of items, if there is an international conflict and a sudden huge increase in demand for firearms, the chance that the supply chain is not going to be able to deliver quickly mm -hmm. also goes up. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the things we're going to do this year. So we sold a VF2 earlier. And we're going to take another VF2 and move it to the, okay, there's a row of six machines. We sold the far machine on the right. The far machine on the left is right next to our saw and it's right by the door. We're going to move that all the way over. And then it will create essentially 12 feet of space. And we're going to start bonding our material. We've never really had to do that because here in Southern California, whatever your heart desires to, to get for material, you just place the order and it shows up the next morning from one of 15 different material suppliers in our area on a truck by 10 a.m. But mm -hmm. you know what's happened is I think it's the post-COVID thing where there's unnecessary supply chain issues. We are struggling because now with adding more and more components, some of the raw materials get converted into two, three, sometimes even four different parts components. So how does that work when we hit a Kanban on a component? Great. Let's make it. Oh, we don't have the material. No. Now we need to start Kanbaning our material that we can pull from. And that always needs to be stocked to a minimum rather than Kanbaning the component. The guys are struggling to understand this. They said, but th wait, there's a Kanban card for like spring plungers made out of two inch aluminum. Yes. But then there's also a Kanban card for two inch 
diameter aluminum? Yes, because there's two other components that are made out of our two-inch round aluminum. Got it. So how does that work? Won't they collide? No, don't worry about it. You'll see. We're just going to get branching supply chains. Yeah, that's right. And really some of the success, or I shouldn't say success, I should say pressure that we're putting on ourselves with this is because our local tooling supplier suppliers were terrible at carrying inventory. Hey, this is a bread and butter end mill that we buy twice a month. Why is it not in stock? So we took that burden instead of hoping to convince them to always keep them in stock, we will now have our own in-house. It's a tooling crib. And so when we pull that one, our supplier that's slow can then slowly replenish our tooling crib rather than the other way around relying on that. So it's really like we're trying to de-emphasize the importance of our suppliers having the things we buy on hand. It's just really taking more ownership of things. That makes total sense. Mm -hmm. We are also moving some machines around or moving some stuff around because we are buying Olave. Dude, yes. You were going to push this forward into next year. Yeah, so we had it. Well, technically uh, is, right? I will tell you all the details in the next episode. Okay. We are buying a lathe, and I'm excited about it. There are still some T's to cross and some I's to dot mm-hmm. and rigging and things to work out, but went and what? checked out a lathe last week. Okay, yeah, I was going to ask, what can you tell? Don't tease it's, me. We're looking at a on a okay. dual spindle, with a bar feeder, buying it from another shop rather than buying it new from a distributor. Great. Yep. And really excited about that. Went and saw the machine. Cool shop that it's in. Met the owner. Great guy. Really neat place. Neat operation. What they make is very different from what we make, but I think it's going to be a great fit for us. And I'm really excited about it, but I don't want to count my lathes until they're on the floor. Mm-hmm. You yeah. Know? Does, so, does he have other lathes he's keeping? No, actually, he had just gotten this one laid in for a project and then is moving. And so he's relocating, he's moving some of the same equipment, and he's not taking his lathe with him. Wow. So, yeah, interesting set of circumstances. The lathe is basically exactly what we were looking for in terms of a dual spindle lathe. Okay. And okay. he had already tooled up with a lot of the same stuff that we would have wanted in terms Great. of royal collets and kind of metal tooling and other things. But it there's still stuff to get dialed in all set and signed and finished so sure it's preliminary yes don't have a rigging date for it yet still working on all that hoping to get that wrapped up quickly and then be able to tell you about it and shoot some video of the lathe when it gets moved so what year is it how old is it it's 2023 jeez that's awesome (laughs) yep it was installed this year so does that mean you're gonna have to move other pieces of equipment around or do you have a spot for it no we have space clear Actually, Great. the exact orientation. We have to move some desks and some shelving. All that is just stuff that's on casters. Sure. We do not sure. have to move any of our current CNC machines around. We do need sure. to drop some more air and drop some power. And the exact orientation of how the lathe is going to fit into our current bay is an open question. We may end up shifting a number of shelves and other things around. Mm-hmm. But we have three CAD workstations out there. Mine and Nick's and Chris's are all in bay one next to the five mills. Okay. And... All those are just computer stations. They can easily be moved around in any orientation we want. Yeah. And so figuring out where we want the lathe placed, how we want the best access to all of its panels for maintenance and cleaning and all that stuff is going to decide where we put it in relation to the wall, where we put it in relation to the mills, which direction it's facing, all that stuff. 
Mm-hmm. So we're going to do that layout work this next week after the shop reopens. That's mm-hmm. one of Chris's jobs is to pose a placement. Yeah. So in my experience, I had different philosophies on lathe placement in a shop. So we used to have our two axis deuce on lathe centrally placed. So it was surrounded by mills because it would bar pull, it would create a part and that part would be just halfway completed. It'd be op one. And then typically we would take that and then it would go to an adjacent machine. We had it next to my old Haas mini mill for many, many years. And then it would just go into soft jaws and finish the backside, whether it was just facing or maybe doing some off-center drilling or milling, that type of thing. That was a really good workflow. But ever since we've really invested in, now we have three turn mills, I don't know, dual spindle that where parts come off 100% complete. It really doesn't matter where those machines go. In fact, I prefer them to be out of the way because mm-hmm. they don't need that much intervention. You mm-hmm. walk by, you measure a part, you do a full inspection. Okay, tweak some offsets and just let it keep going. So I don't know the layout of your shop, but it really doesn't need to be next to anything else other than the fact of like you would want it close to other production so that people are not wasting motion by walking back yeah. and forth. But if it's got a bar feeder, God, you're golden. Especially a deuce. Got a bar feeder. Yeah, it's amazing. I'm really excited about the possibility of having a bar fed lathe on our floor making parts. That's yeah. going to be really neat. I've not spent that much time around bar fed lathes. Mm-hmm. And so at least for a while, I expect to be there with my face stuck up against the glass, just watching it run going, oh, yeah. <laughs> the glass of the machine, right? Not the bar feeder. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Cause my, the bar feeder, you, never- it never moves <laughs> hardly ever. My kids and I were watching some lathe CNC videos on YouTube and my daughter was watching this, some big lathe just peel these huge chips off this giant thing. Yeah. Just like, that's so satisfying to oh, watch. Like, yeah. Watching lathes run, so satisfying. <laughs> it scratches some deep psychological itch. Well, <laughs> you know what? It's uh, It has similarities to pottery. Yep. So I don't know, maybe it's intrinsic to humans making round things, spinning things, forming yeah. things. Yeah, the it's also kind of like you ever seen one of those handle cranked apple peelers? Yeah, like, yeah, it's you just totally. stick an apple on there and it crank it through. It just peels all the skin off. I remember thinking that thing was so cool. My mom knew she could just clamp that via the table and hand me oh. a big bowl full of apples, and I'd happily crank through all of them because wow. I was so entertained by watching it just peel the skin off. Yeah, yeah, that's good. But so we we're talking about that. that. We were talking before the podcast about bringing the spinning wheel back into the Hey, I've got it right here. Should I spin it? What are we sure. We'll keep the topic short. We got to run pretty soon. But Last spin of the year. And we had a blank category. We landed on that. Going again. Okay. Shipping and fulfillment. I feel like we've done this one before. I'm not <laughs> sure this wheel is super balanced. Let's spin it one more time. Okay. <laughs> Amazingly shipping and fulfillment again. <laughs> wow. I don't know. I think that it's, someone's got their foot on the roulette wheel here. I'm going to go customer service. That's what I'm going to go. Pick. Books you're reading. Oh, Stop that great. Books you're reading. Perfect, Perfect. topic. What yes. category would you like to talk about? Books you're oh reading? Oh, look at that. It's Stop that. Books you're reading. Okay. <laughs> I'll tell you what I'm reading. There's this book that I don't know when I got it. I don't even know where I got it, but it's called The New Manager's Handbook, 24 Lessons for Mastering Your New Role by Maury Stetner with two Ts. 
So okay. I've had this on my bookshelf. It looks like I've flipped through it just a handful of times. I see a couple of things underlined. At some point, I went through it. I did a, must have been like a, a quick just flip through, but it's actually a really great little jam-packed book. And it is just like, I'm going to give it to pretty much everyone on my team because I do feel like everyone in the company has the potential to be a manager at some point in their life. Way back in the day, I used to work at Enterprise Rent-A-Car, we'll pick you up. And I was a green shirt. It's really the blue collar guys that are picking people up, dropping them off, washing the cars, going film them up, taking them to the body shop, et cetera. But Enterprise, if you wanted to work in the company, you had to have a college degree. And those were the white shirts, the people behind the counters. And it was because the CEO said, I anticipate that the next CEO of the company or the someday CEO of Enterprise Rent-A-Car will have started many years ago by working at a branch, renting vehicles out. And I want to make sure they're prepared. So that's why they just have to have a college degree. So I thought, it's, I don't have a college degree. I don't want a college degree. But you know, for me, I do have the idea, I guess it may have been planted back then, that you can start at the very bottom and work your way up to a very high place in a position in a company. So that's why I'm probably going to go through this again. We'll probably use it as one of the things we tack on to our morning meetings and then just go through it because it's just like, it's written for non-readers. It's short. It's only got what, just over a hundred pages. And it's just so darn practical. I feel like a lot of books, a lot of great books I've read, Good to Great is an incredible work, but you know, it's thick and it's detailed and it's heady. And there's some concepts in there that are a bit esoteric at times, but this, the new manager's handbook, I think it's like a gem. So I'll be going through that. Also, when I got first started, just starting Pearson Industries when I was making mountain bike parts back in 0203, I read a series of books by Jeffrey J. Fox. And one of them was How to Become a Rainmaker, basically how to create sales. Another one, How to Make a Big Money in Your Small Business. And I plowed through these books. I mean, they, I thought they were the best books. They're very short chapters, like a long chapter is three pages. A short mm. chapter is a page and a half. And they were just these nuggets of wisdom that me coming off of, I'm so sick of school. I'm tired of reading things, especially obligatory reading. This is like, I want to read. It was so good. Well, I went back through some of those books and they feel like a little bit of like business light at this point. It's just, I matured kind of beyond that stuff, but that's another set of books that I would love to have my team go through at some point just to Put them in the mindset of ownership. Yes, you're an employee, but there's areas of ownership both in this company and in your life that I'd like you to really hone into. What about you? Cool. Uh, actually, the book I was reading last night is one of my is one of my favorite Christmas presents that I got this year. Mm. It was a book that I read when I was a kid and loved, and I mentioned it recently to my kids, and my wife found a copy and ordered it for me. It is a landmark book. There's a whole series of landmark books there written for young readers. And this one was published in 1958 by George Weller. It's called The Story of the Paratroops. Wow. And it is a history of early skydiving and the inclusion of paratrooping as a combat tool mm. in various militaries in the early part of the 20th century. And then a history of the major airborne actions in World War II, primarily. Mm. Wow. Fascinating book. I remember being just, I read the whole thing cover to cover over and over as a kid. I thought it was amazing. My wife found a youth copy and got it for me and wrapped it up for me for Christmas. And I thought That's that awesome. was super fun. So last night I sat down and it reads super fast. 
And I read through two thirds of it last night, just sitting on my couch. And it was amazing how much of it I remembered. Huh. But it's going to be a book that I read to my boys because it's just great. It's really fun. Wow. It's a relatively simple, low resolution history. Okay. But interesting, full of cool anecdotes, a lot of historical information there, and some interesting black and white photos of early paratroopers' actions in Normandy, in Arnhem, uh, so Operation Market Garden in World War II. Just cool stuff. That's cool. So that's a total change from the normal business and theory focused kind of reading that I normally do to just sit down and pick up a book that I haven't seen in decades. Yeah, right. And just crash through it for pure enjoyment. It was well, and, very and especially like there's a sentimental aspect of it too, because you've read it and it's Oh yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Oh, yeah. That I gotta fun. show you this. It makes me laugh. I was at my local bookstore and I found this popular, popular mechanics. Mechanics. And it's old. Maybe I'll put this on the Instagram. It's from December 1941. And it is so cool. Oh, first on the backside is a hilarious ad for cigarettes. It's of stuff. But it, it's popular mechanics from the perspective of someone trying to live in the future in 1941. And some of the things that they say in here that are going to like be the next, like the next iPhone or something like that, if we were talking in the year 2000, it's just so hilarious how humanity had fits and starts of things that just never came to fruition, but were featured in Popular Mechanics magazine in December Flying cars. What's that? Flying cars. Yes. Flying cars. Totally. Like the cover itself is like this combo flying car submarine where it's a hydrofoil, but it can fly. It's just hilarious. It cracks me up. So <laughs> yeah, that type of stuff is so cool. And it only costs 25 cents, but 30 cents in Canada. Oh, the Canadians and their weird exchange rates. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, that's yeah, time to wrap that's it up. Reading. It's been a great first calendar year to have our podcast in, Jay. Thank you very much. Yeah. And I look forward to recording in 2024 with you. Yeah. And a special thanks to our listeners because the growth rate of this podcast f- far, far exceeded anything that I thought we would do. I just wanted to talk to Andrew on a regular basis. And kind of like shout out to John and John at the Business of Machine podcast, like by far my favorite podcast, just so fun because you're invited in on their journey. So for us, I don't know, I just feel like one of my personal callings is to help move the state of manufacturing forward. And just by hearing other people do that and bouncing ideas off of people, I think it's just a, it's a cool opportunity that Andrew, you and I share by having this podcast. So special thanks to the listeners. And props to Nathan Alberson, who does our editing for us. He's been doing a great job. So thank you, Nathan. Yeah. Good job, Nate.